Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. COVID crescendo, US cases hit records just eight days away from the presidential election. China's control, Beijing begins mass testing after finding a single asymptomatic case. And state of emergency, European governments take drastic steps to contain the virus. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always as we head into a frightfully busy pre-Halloween period for global markets and beyond. Let me just walk you through this. More than 160 big U.S. firms set to report results over the next few days, including some of the pandemic outperformers like Amazon, Apple and Alphabet, to name just a few. October's trading also wraps up this Friday. And finally, we have eight days, as I mentioned, until the U.S. presidential election, leaving little time now for an emergency aid deal to be agreed beforehand. All this amid the specter of rising COVID cases. It's perhaps no surprise that stock market investors are on edge overnight. And this morning, as mentioned, U.S. cases back to record levels. The White House chief of staff yesterday all but conceding that the U.S. cannot control the pandemic. In the meantime, Spain and Italy both announcing new restrictions to try to curb infections too. I think there's a palpable fear that no economy can withstand a return to the mass shutdowns that we saw earlier this year that would further hamper economic recovery and for businesses, of course, lower profits. That's the case for European software giant SAP. It's currently down some 26% plus after warning that COVID will impact sales well into 2021, that weighing on the German DAX. Remember what we've been saying, the virus will ultimately dictate the pace of economic recoveries. Dr. Anthony Fauci said over the weekend that we'll know by early December whether an effective vaccine is coming anytime soon. Positive news on some of the vaccine trials here in the United States coming up later in the show. So that's something to hang on to. But we are well and truly back to watching the science and the stimulus. Let's get to the drivers because Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. We're well and truly on the countdown now. We've got US cases accelerating. We've got European cases accelerating. Little hope, I think, of stimulus. And then those comments from White House Chief of Staff, Mike Meadows, over the weekend too. Mark Meadows, forgive me. Just listen to what he had to say. We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation. Why aren't we going to get control of the because, pandemic? Because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why not it's make contain- efforts to contain it? Well, we are making efforts to contain it. By and, running and all over the country and not wearing a mask? If I were closer to the camera screen, Christine, I would headbutt it. But I yeah. think there's, um, there's a real recognition, I think, from investors here that wherever you look, things aren't under control. No, they're not under control. And every family knows that, too. We heard the president also this weekend trying to just get over COVID and even even recently blaming the media for talking about COVID so much as a way to to get him out of office and saying the day after the election, there will be no more discussions of COVID. That's just not true. Major companies, small businesses, families, schools. This is the driver of decisions in just about every level of decision making in the United States right now. And and, and saying you can't contain it, countries, companies, 
families are trying to figure out how to contain it on their own here. So this is a really, really big factor heading into the fall, no question. The number one issue on everybody's minds here, you heard from SAP, uh, we're going to be watching all of these earnings coming through to see just how, how, how dangerous this is on their bottom line or disruptive this is uh, to their bottom line. We know, you know, we know that women are dropping out of the labor force because the schools are not completely up and running and where they are, there are quarantines and kids are having to go home. So this is quite frankly, uh, just a mess that does need to be controlled. And, and it is a real risk eight days into the election, but what the American people feel about the government's handling of this uh, as they cast their ballot. Yeah, and you and I talk endlessly about our concern over the fundamentals, the real economy, real people and the challenges this presents. And yet I was poring over all sorts of research over the weekend. And it's funny for most financial analysts out there, whichever way this election goes, the belief is that, look, actually stock markets are going to be okay. A a democratic sweep means we get more spending and we get it sooner rather than later. Split government means that the Democrats can't raise taxes. What do we think of this? You know, it's so risky to me because you've got with the S&P up 7% this year and up 3%, I think, this month. So it's priced for those sort of scenarios already here. So, you know, there's always that risk um, that they've already priced for the best scenario and and they they don't get it. A contested election, I think the conventional wisdom would be terrible, right? A long, drawn-out legal battle would not not be good. But even today on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, business warms a bit to Biden because he's not Bernie or or a progressive, right, or a a real progressive socialist. And business is starting to figure out how they could live with a pragmatic uh, Joe Biden and how they could live with potentially a Democratic sweep. I'm not calling for that, but live with that because of the kind of spending it would eject into the economy, even if he would raise taxes. And they say if there's another if another Donald Trump administration, there'd be more, you know, more, uh, maybe more tax cutting. Who knows? Maybe permanent tax cuts um, for, for the middle class. He's dangled that before, although never followed through with that. And maybe more deregulation. So they could live with it both ways, I think. But again, with the S&P up 7% this year and up 3% this month, this is why you see people a little bit nervous right now when you get closer to the actual decision date. Yeah, and for our viewers, we are actually wearing different degrees of red tops here. You're not wearing rose-tinted <laughs> spectacles, quite frankly. Relative economic stability is, is an economic policy now, it seems. Fascinating. Christine Ramos, thank you so much for that. Mm. It's just eight days until the presidential election. As we keep mentioning, this continues to be the coronavirus election. Vice President Mike Pence set to remain on the campaign trail, that despite at least five of his aides contracting COVID-19. is expected in the Senate later for the vote to confirm Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. Joe Johns joins us now. Joe, we have lots to discuss, but I want to hone in on what Christine and I were talking about there with the comments from Mark Meadows over the weekend about not controlling the pandemic, because I know you tackled the White House Director of Strategic Communications about this and got some pushback. Talk us through it. That's right. What you can say safely, Julia, is that the White House is already trying to do a cleanup on aisle four, if you will. Alyssa, the strategic director of communications here, Alyssa Farah, was out here on the driveway just a little while ago. And I did ask her whether the administration had essentially given up trying to control the pandemic. And she said, absolutely not. She said that they are moving full speed ahead. But there's a big difference between what the administration says and what the administration does. For example, uh, what's pretty clear is the vice president is not going to be 
engaging in the types of activities that his own coronavirus task force has suggested in the event of close contact with a person who uh, has coronavirus or has tested positive. So the vice president is in close contact with his uh, chief of staff. That man's name is Mark Short. He has tested positive for coronavirus. And so the vice president normally would essentially isolate himself for 14 days or whatever uh, to make sure that there was nothing wrong. But what this vice president is doing is flying around the country, continuing to campaign for re-election along with the president. He's going to be in three Midwestern states this week and in Minnesota today, I believe. So uh, he's going to be campaigning. And uh, the point is the administration says he is an essential worker, which necessarily is true as far as his constitutional responsibilities are concerned. Uh, but he's not an essential worker when it comes to campaigning. This evening, for example, one of his constitutional responsibilities would be to sit in the chair during the vote for Amy Coney Barrett, and we expect him to be there. In fact, Alyssa Farah said as much. Uh, again, though, uh, flying around the country and taking off his mask when he gives speeches, all the while knowing that he's been at least exposed to Mark Short, with whom he works very closely, uh, you know, that's a potential problem because it could be a few days before we know for sure whether the vice president is in the clear. Julia? Yeah, and you're certainly hearing uh, noises of disquiet, let's call it that, from uh, the Democrats here who are saying he doesn't need to be in the Senate for that vote. Why is he coming rather than taking uh, greater precautions? But, Joe, I think there's also been criticism that actually the Senate Republicans have been far more focused on getting through their Supreme Court nominee pick rather than being focused on the stimulus negotiations and, and willing to pass something to help American people. And that's the sad fact and where we stand today. That's absolutely right. And just sort of to, to put an exclamation point on that, there is a distinct possibility that here at the White House we will see yet another event in the Rose Garden this evening celebrating or commemorating the confirmation vote for Amy Coney Barrett. And that will be in the very same place where we had a super spreader event when the president first formally announced him as his pick to uh, replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court. So we're already seeing uh, pushback from individuals who say it's not a good idea to participate in business as usual here at the White House or anywhere else while we're still dealing with the pandemic, Julia. Yeah. Joe Johns, thank you for joining us there from Washington, D.C. Now, as U.S. COVID cases surge to new highs, China embarking on its latest mass testing drive and lockdown measures, this time in the far western region of Xinjiang. It comes as President Xi and members of the Communist Party's Central Committee meet in Beijing this week to discuss the nation's next five-year plan. Selena Wang is here with more. Selena, my understanding is one asymptomatic case is found and China goes into mass testing around five million people in this region. Talk us through this. 
Julia, it does feel a bit like deja vu. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about China's mass testing drive after just about a dozen cases were reported in Qingdao, and then they tested more than 10 million people in just four days. Now, this time, as you said, we're talking about a single asymptomatic case that was found in the Kashgar Prefecture. This is in Xinjiang. This is the far western region of China. It's also where the U.S. State Department estimates that as many as 2 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities have been detained. Now, after that single asymptomatic case, we saw China go on this mass testing drive. They're trying to test about 5 million people in a matter of days. Now, they already traced that single asymptomatic case to a woman working in a garment factory. Since the testing started, they've identified 137 asymptomatic cases. Now, it may seem like a small number of cases compared to what we're talking about in other parts of the world. But, Julia, that does amount to the highest number of daily COVID cases that China has had in about seven months. And we've really seen this strategy, Julia, just resemble what China is trying to do each time they have a small flare-up. They'll go into mass testing, extreme contact tracing, and lockdown. So these are swift and dramatic measures. However, some experts have questioned some of the effectiveness and whether it's necessary to test an entire city all at once, since really this is just providing a snapshot since cases are normally found over a period of time. So you even have someone at China's CDC saying that it may not be necessary to test the entire city. They could do more focused testing instead around the cluster and the people around that cluster. Yeah, and a number of times perhaps as well. But hey, it doesn't half look impressive when you compare it to the rest of the world. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Governments across Europe ordering sweeping new restrictions to combat a surge in coronavirus cases. Spain has declared a state of emergency. Italy imposing new restrictions on restaurants, bars, gyms and cinemas. And France extending nighttime curfews after reporting a record high number of new cases for the fourth day in a row. Melissa Bell is in Paris for us, Melissa. And wherever you look, it seems, for some of these big nations in Europe, cases are accelerating. That's right. Europe is being particularly hard hit, Julia, by this second wave. Take France, for instance. You mentioned that extension of curfews. It is now 46 million French people living under curfews. And the big question is whether they're going to work in time. Here in the greater Paris region, which is one of those areas that's been hardest hit, where the ICUs are under greatest strain, uh, what the head of the regional authority is warning is that it's by tomorrow or Wednesday that we're really going to have an idea of whether the curfews are having the desired effect, because here in Paris they've now been in place for more than a week. But as you say, those rises continue. Uh, to see record levels in terms of the number of new cases and that's what authorities are going to be looking at. Also worth noting, Julia, that although the number of new cases reached more than 52,000 yesterday, a fresh record, the head of France's scientific council is warning that in fact the figure could be double that. So we could in fact be seeing rises of 100,000 cases a day because of the number of asymptomatic people because not everybody bothers to get tested. And that gives you an idea of how bad the figures are and how worried authorities are. You mentioned also uh, that that extension in Spain of the state of emergency, Julia, that's been extended till May. And that really gives you an idea of how long authorities here in Europe are fearing that it might take to get things back under control. Yeah, we shall see. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that report there. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still ahead. Biden or bust? Six former secretaries of commerce say he's the man to get America's economy back on track. We speak to one of them about the how. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where it's still looking like a soft start to the trading week, the final trading week of October. Negative news on global COVID cases, hurting sentiment, election timing, of course, and still ongoing uncertainties regarding more financial aid for millions of Americans, too. Deal-making, though, is pushing ahead. Bayer is buying privately held U.S. biotech firm Ask Bio for some $4 billion, a big bet on the American firm's gene therapies. Reports also saying that Dunkin' Brands, the parent company of Dunkin' Donuts, is in talks to be bought out in a private equity deal. Dunkin' shares up, wow, some 18% pre-market too. In the meantime, IPO mania in full swing over in Asia too. The Chinese fintech giant Ann Group priced shares for both its Shanghai and Hong Kong listing today, raising some $34 billion, making it by far and away the biggest stock market listing in history. More on that dual listing later on in the show. But for now, let's bring it back to uh, the U.S. election and in a boon to the Biden campaign. Six former U.S. Commerce secretaries are endorsing the Democratic ticket in an open letter. It's signed by five Democrats and one Republican who say, quote, we believe that a Biden presidency will mark the return to the certainty and security that our economy needs to thrive. Joining us now, Carlos Gutierrez. He was U.S. Secretary of Commerce under George W. Bush. He's a former CEO of Kellogg Company and current executive chairman of software company Empath. Carlos, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Is stability an economic policy, therefore, in your mind? Just explain why you signed this letter. Well, stability is... uh it means uh, a certain amount of calm in the markets. It means not any abrupt decisions that moves the market up and down. Uh, today, there's a great deal of instability, and instability makes the markets more volatile. Uh, as, as you know, no one really knows when people are going to get back to work, the economy is going to fully reopen. That is uncertainty. Uh, Having a leadership stance on COVID and having a plan to to really get rid of this virus, that would lead to stability. The last thing we have today is stability. There's just too much, too many moving parts. Uh, And the economy is suffering. The country is suffering. I believe our standing in the world is suffering. We haven't really heard a concerted plan from the Biden campaign about what the plan would be to to control COVID. Is there just an assumption here that a Biden-led White House would do a better job than the Trump-led White House and in communicating a message down to the individual states? Well, you know, I'm not a surrogate for uh, for uh, Vice President Biden, uh, but I will say that uh, something as easy as the leader of the country wearing a mask and constantly reminding people to wear a mask and constantly reminding people to take this seriously and constantly reminding people that this is serious. That right there would be leadership. Now, of course, below that, there has to be a big plan. Hospitals are getting overrun. Uh, We don't have enough PPE. Uh, There needs to be uh, a logistics plan, a manufacturing plan, a distribution plan. That comes below. But just the mere fact of the leader of the country wearing a mask, telling people this is serious, that right there would be a huge change. 
I, I appreciate your point as well about not being a, a proxy here for the for the Biden campaign. And the Commerce Secretary position, typically one of the least politicised, actually, in, in a cabinet. Can I ask you what's been wrong specifically with the, the policies that, that the Trump White House has put into place and what you'd like to see reversed? I mean, we can take it taxes, China, you take your pick. Uh, well, let's start with trade and trade leads to China. Uh, the trade war with China has not been a success. It has been a disaster for manufacturing. We continue to lose manufacturing jobs. Uh, the great irony here is that these tariffs were put on to lower our trade deficit. Our trade deficit is up because manufacturing just moved from China to other countries. Uh, so that's, that's one thing is get back to trade. We are suffering and somehow the president has tried to convince people that the tariffs that that uh, we pay, that consumers pay, that customers pay, are actually paid by China. No, it, it, that goes into the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy suffers. Consumers suffer. Companies suffer. So I would start with trade policy. Uh, the trade policy over the last four years has been the farthest thing from a Republican administration, as I've seen, and it hasn't really worked. I also think our policy on immigration is totally wrong because we need immigration to grow. We don't have enough working age people going into sciences or going into low skilled labor. We need it all. We need a system that is legal, that, that is organized. Uh, but it, the, the solution of just putting a hold to it uh, is going to hurt the economy as well. Those two policy issues, in addition to uh, many Republicans dislike this white supremacy aspect of his campaign. The fact that he has not really given any credence to the George Floyd killings. Uh, that part of the social fabric of the country is being questioned. It's just that people are saying this is not who we are. Uh, of course, we don't want to be overrun by refugees, but that doesn't mean we have to put children in cages. So there's a reckoning going on, and I think people are realizing that this is not the U.S. they want. There is a core base that will vote for the president, call it 32, 30-something. Uh, aside from that, there were people outside of that core who voted for him in 2016. Those are the people who are having second thoughts. Those are the people who are changing and saying, you know, I'm going for Biden this time. The polls suggest that Biden is going to win and it's interesting, if you look back at 2016, hmm. what happened is pretty much what the polls said were going, it was going to happen. So I would keep my eye on those polls because they've proven to be right. Carlos, I have about a minute left. It's looking like the big shift that will take place under uh, a Biden White House, potentially a Democratic shift in Congress as well, is high tax rates. Higher tax rates for wealthier people, higher corporation tax rates. Is that going to be okay, or is that going to have an impact on economic growth, inward investment? What do you make of that? Hey, look, it's a good question, and I, I don't like taxes. I don't like higher taxes. I think higher taxes are bad for the economy. But, but the reality is that we have the largest fiscal deficit that we've had since World War II. We haven't really talked a lot about that, but we have a massive fiscal deficit. I don't know how you get rid of that without looking at taxes, without looking at expenditures, without looking at uh, everything. And and that's going to be the real challenge is whether the person is left or right, they're going to have to fix that deficit. They're going to have to get the economy on track. 
So there's not a lot of room here for ideology. Yes, they, they, they may want to increase taxes on the richest, but that's not going to fix the deficit. It's a lot bigger than that. So there's so much to do, and I suppose taxes is, what, is one part of it. I don't think a President Trump could get to this deficit without raising taxes. Hmm. Maybe he wouldn't, but he would just let the deficit grow and grow and grow. Eventually, we have to deal with this. Yeah, the beauty of having the largest and deepest bond market in the world is that people mm -hmm. keep buying, at least for now. Not a lot of room for ideology. I'll remember that. Carlos Gutierrez, great to chat to you, sir, the former U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Fantastic conversation. Thank you. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where the new trading week is underway on Wall Street. Supernova listing on the New York Stock Exchange there and some high fives of celebration. But as expected, we've got a lower open across the board here after last week's pullback for stock markets too. Rising virus cases and a lack of action on emergency aid in D.C. impacting sentiment today too. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow said a short while ago that talks between the White House and the Democrats have slowed but are still ongoing. I think a snail, quite frankly, would be quicker. And as we mentioned before, shares of Chinese fintech giant Ant Group could begin trading as soon as this week. Ant priced its shares today in both Shanghai and Hong Kong. It's set to be the largest ever global IPO, raising some $34 billion more on this mega IPO coming up on the show for now. They'll return once again. To our top story today, a surge in COVID infections has brought America's seven-day average of new cases to all-time highs. A total of more than 8.6 million people have been infected since the start of the pandemic. The former head of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration says the country is now at a dangerous tipping point. Elizabeth Cohen is here. Elizabeth, some alarming numbers, eye-watering numbers, in fact. Just talk us through exactly what we're seeing in terms of new cases. And if you can weave in hospitalizations, too, because I guess that's the next thing to watch. That's right. So what we watch for is new cases, which sadly, after a week or two, leads to new hospitalizations, which then in time leads to new deaths. And so what we're starting with right now is new cases. And you want to talk about sobering. Take a look at this map. What this map shows is that 37 out of the 50 U.S. states are experiencing rises in COVID. If you look at last week compared to the previous week, six of those states are seeing really huge increases by more than 50 percent in just that one week in yellow. And so those states are in dark red and orange. If you look in yellow at the yellow states, those are 13 states that are holding steady. No states are experiencing a decrease in cases. In no states are the number of COVID cases going down. Julia? Yeah, very, very worrying. Elizabeth, offset that, please, with some vaccine news for us. We heard Friday, which feels like months ago already, Good news, it seems, potentially for a trial restart for AstraZeneca and, and Johnson & Johnson here in the United States. What do we know? That's right. Those two trials, which hold such promise. And just to back up for a minute, there are only four vaccines in clinical trials, in phase three clinical trials. That's the large scale trials of tens of thousands of people. There's only four and two were on pause because participants had become 
ill, one participant in each trial. And they were looking at those illnesses and trying to figure out, gee, is this because of the vaccine or not? So that's not great to have half of your trials on pause. But as you said, on Friday, they came off pause. So let's take a look at those dates because that tells you something about the progress of those trials. If we look at AstraZeneca, that's one of the two. They started on August 31st in the U.S. and they paused on September 9th. So they were just on for a little over a week before they went on pause. Johnson & Johnson started September 23rd and paused October 12th. So they were in, in progress for not even three weeks before they went on pauses. So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. is basically saying, look, we looked at these illnesses and we decided that it doesn't look like they're connected to the vaccine. So we're going to let these trials continue. I will tell you that sources tell me that there will be a lot of eyes on those trials to make sure that other people people aren't getting sick. If they do, if other participants in the trial get sick, and if they're similar to the illnesses that were seen before, that is for sure a red flag. Julia? Yeah, the scrutiny doesn't get higher from any of us, right. quite frankly, at this point. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, while I've got you, we were talking earlier on in the show about Mike Pence and the fact that a number of people around him in close contact with him had tested positive over the weekend for COVID-19. We have some news, I believe, on his latest test results. Um, well, the, so oh. there's this group around. Oh, I see. You may oh. not actually know. I'm hearing that I know and you don't know. Apparently he tested <laughs> negative, which is good news. Okay. You see, the joys of breaking news. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So that is good news that he tested negative. And I'm sure that they will continue to test the vice president. When you get sort of so many people in his orbit who are testing positive, it certainly gives one pause. It makes you think of what happened with President Trump. He had several people sort of in his group who had tested positive and unfortunately he tested positive although he then of course fortunately did recover so i'm sure speaking of scrutiny there will be a lot of scrutiny a lot of tests for mike pence in the future to make sure that he hasn't also come down with covid yeah and they'll continue to check it no doubt elizabeth great to have you with us thank you so much for that Thanks. elizabeth Cohen. Thanks. thank you all right up next a city in california is handing out 500 dollars a month in cash in a daring trial of universal basic income it's the first in modern US history, and we'll speak to the city's mayor who's pioneered it. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As millions of unemployed Americans await news on more financial aid from the federal government, the city of Stockton in California is extending a pioneering experiment with universal basic income. 125 recipients get $500 a month in cash with no strings attached. The man behind the program is the mayor, Michael Tubbs. He was born and raised in Stockton and is the subject of the HBO documentary Stockton On My Mind. Tubbs studied at Stanford University, interned at the Obama White House before becoming the youngest mayor of a major U.S. city at the tender age of 26. I'm very excited to say joining us now is Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton. Mayor Tubbs, fantastic to have you on the show. I, I have to say, I watched that documentary and I was completely blown away, but I just want to rewind. What does it take for a person who's got the world at his feet, having left university going, you know what, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and make a difference to where I grew up at 26 years old. Talk us through it. Yeah, well, when I grew up, growing up in Stockton, so much of the narrative was to be successful meant you had to leave. 
Um, so I was accepted to Stanford as the first one in my family to go to college. I thought I had did just that and had no intention of coming back. But it was while interning in the White House, one of my cousins was a victim of a homicide. He was murdered in Stockton. And it was that grief, that anger, that pain that made me think about sort of what if this tragedy, there was some purpose to come from it. Um, so after a lot of soul searching, a lot of arguments uh, with my mom who didn't want me to come <laughs> back, I, I decided to run for city council. And I spent four years on city council and realized that government can't do everything, but there is a role of government of, for government to play. And that's why I decided to run for mayor four years ago. It's fascinating. And we'll, we'll talk about your, um, your mother and the impact that the women in your life have had, because that's a, another, I think, really important angle here. But um, Michael, just describe the, the challenges and the conditions, because when I was just Googling about the city of Stockton, what comes up on Google is crime rates poverty, some of the major challenges that we talk about all the time, not just in the United States, but, but, but elsewhere in the world. You had a lot of challenges that you had to face in this city. Absolutely. Stockton is ground zero, um, I think, for American life. We're the most diverse city in this country. But we also have some real structural challenges. Um, growing up in poverty um, in the city of Stockton is not unique to me. And there's a lot of young people in our community even still who grow up in poverty. The murder of my cousin wasn't necessarily unique to me, but for the, most of the past 30 years, we've been double or triple kind of state average in homicides. And I think when I ran for office for city council, we had just declared bankruptcy. We're the most miserable city. But in the past eight years, we have made significant strides. And I think that's it's the, the statistics that give me the courage to really be bold and, and to lead and to really try to do things differently. And we saw in 2018 and 2019 a 40% reduction in homicides. We now give scholarships wow. to... Every student who graduates from our largest school district through the Stockton Scholars Program, we're piloting basic income. We're now the second most fiscally healthy city. So it's not Disneyland, but we are making progress and strides. But to your point, a lot of it just comes from a very visceral and lived experience with the challenges and wanting to do everything collectively in our power to actually upset the setup, as we say, and change these outcomes for our children. Yeah. And I'm sorry about the loss of your cousin as well. Um... Talk to me about pioneering universal basic income, because this is just one piece of all the changes I know that you've made. But you were like, actually, $500 a month extra to some people and some families could make all the difference. Just explain your thinking on this and and the impact that it had. Well, I learned about basic income or a guaranteed income from studying Dr. King, who talked Hmm. about this in 1967 in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? And he talks about how we try to solve poverty by solving for other challenges, by solving for education, by solving for healthcare, by solving for housing, which is all important work that has to be done. But he said the most simplest way to abolish poverty is the most direct, a guaranteed income. And ever since reading that, I've been fascinated with the idea and figuring out why haven't we at least tried it on that scale in this country. And as you mentioned, some of the statistics in Stockton, I truly believe that A, poverty is the root cause of all the issues we complain on Facebook about and all the issues we tweet about and all the issues we're we're upset with each other about. And I also recognize that as someone who grew up in poverty, that poverty isn't about individual choices. It's about wider system policy choices. And I think we see that so clear now during COVID-19 where we have billionaires who have tripled or doubled their wealth, um, companies more profitable than ever, while we have working people who are in food lines, while we have millions of people 
who are now food insecure. We have 8 million new people um, in poverty. And this, it's that backdrop that led me to try to do a guaranteed income pilot where we give $500 a month for, 18, for the last 22 months to families in Stockton. And part of it was rooted in this notion that $500 may not even be enough. It's definitely not enough to replace work. It's definitely not enough for, to have everyone quit, try to be resourceful and industrious, but it is enough to provide an income floor. It is enough to allow folks to build economic resilience. It is enough um, to allow work to go further and to give people the dignity that comes with agency in terms of the choices they make and how to use their time, if they have to work two jobs, if they have to stay in a bad job they don't like. And I also think it gives honor to caregivers, and particularly most of whom are women, who are at home doing domestic work, who are doing child rearing work, and who aren't compensated for that hard work. Yeah, and we also, there's a racial component here as well in that we know that the income gap is disproportionate. So when you give $500 to people, it sort of brings up, particularly for, for in the, the, the racial aspect, it brings up those minority families as well, which I think is so important. And I know you talk about this, but I want to talk to you about the fact that it's income, it's not wealth. And if we really want to make huge changes, and I've seen you talk about this before, we have to give people the ability to build wealth ultimately. And it sort of ties to, I know, your passion for education as well. And the three mums, your aunt, your grandmother and your mother and why they made such an important piece of your upbringing about education. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell people all the time, I appreciate the question. Income and wealth are different. Um, and, and a guaranteed income or a basic income is not going to solve every challenge. I think it's an effective one to solve for the income gaps and, and for poverty. But to, And I think once people build the floor, they can do the things like that it takes to create wealth. I know that people research suggests that kids who have more money, whose parents aren't economically anxious, who grow up in more stable environments, not surprisingly do better in school, not surprisingly have higher educational attainment. It's not because those kids are inherently smarter or inherently more hardworking. It's because those kids are in a more stable environment where the basic necessities of food, of a safe space to study during COVID-19 times, the ability to have access to quality hi-fi Wi-Fi allows them to do well in school. So, so absolutely, I think a guaranteed income is the first step to get into the deeper conversation around kind of wealth inequalities and figuring out how do we, we reverse some of the wealth gaps we see amongst the races, which are as bad as they've been at any time um, in this nation's history post-slavery. So that's definitely another challenge um, we have to address. Yeah, and worsened throughout the, the, the pandemic as well. And that's, and that's ultimately what we've seen. Michael, I know you've pulled together, I believe, 25 city mayors to talk about this concept and to explain to them, I think, what difference this can ultimately make. Do you think it works on a greater scale? Is it something that you could perhaps say to, to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and say, guys, look at what we're doing here and we need to be having a, a more focused conversation about this? Is that going to be part of the plan? I am absolutely wholeheartedly 100% committed that the federal government has to make guaranteed income a policy, at the very least as part of our COVID-19 pandemic response. And I'm joined, as you mentioned, with mayors from the Mayors from Guaranteed Income Network, from mayors across this nation, who are saying our constituents need the dignity of having an income floor. Our constituents have dignity. And because of that, we need to treat them in ways um, that, that reflect that dignity. And luckily for us, Senator Harris, has a bill in Congress now that speaks to sort of $2,000 a month 
and COVID-19 response. And, and, and Senator, I mean, Vice President Biden has talked about how he sees this as his FDR and his New Deal moment. And that makes me excited because I realized that in 2020, the sum total of our pandemic response um, has been one-time stimulus checks and then unemployment insurance, which was a bold, radical idea in 1935. 85 years ago. <laughs> this is 2020. I don't use a 1935 phone. My car was not in 1935. Didn't have the car I have. This computer wasn't even invented in 1935, or at least the Wi-Fi we use today. So we have to have a social safety net that's reflective of 2020 realities. So I'm working hard for Joe and Kamala. I fully expect them to win. And as soon as they're elected, I will begin my efforts in lobbying and saying this is what the American people need. This is the new deal, an extension of the social safety net that, again, reflects the dignity of all people. Yeah, radical new ideas and not so radical, quite frankly. That's what we need. Michael, fantastic, fantastic to chat to you. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Uh, Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton in California. Great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, a king-sized IPO for Ant, how the fintech giant pulled off the biggest public offering on record. Next. Welcome back to First Move. Chinese tech mogul Jack Ma savoring victory today. He's about to pull off the biggest global IPO ever, raising some $34 billion for his fintech firm Ant. Ant priced its shares today, meaning they could begin trading on both the Shanghai and Hong Kong stock exchanges very soon. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, I don't know whether there's such a thing as a mammoth Ant, but this is a monster IPO. Like we said, it's going to be the biggest one ever. Yeah, it's topping Saudi Aramco, which was about $29 billion. And what was interesting is, you know, keep in mind, you just said that they're going to be trading in Hong Kong and Shanghai, not New York, even though Alibaba is listed on New York's exchanges. So it's an interesting uh, move to see that this is bypassing Wall Street in favor of listing in Hong Kong and Shanghai. Yeah, and that's the key and probably likely to be the key no matter who wins this election, quite frankly, as a result of the um, of the tensions. What more do we know about this IPO and how soon could we see it up and running? Yeah, I think we are expecting a listing within the next uh, few weeks now that we have the pricing. And Ant Financial is, Ant Group owns Alipay and it is a gigantic company in the world of financial services technology. It is generating a lot of revenue and big profits as well. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if this IPO really does attract a lot of interest from investors around the globe, because unlike a lot of the unicorns that have gone public in the past couple of years here in America, this is a profitable company that has obviously the backing of Jack Ma and a great brand name behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, even though it's not listing here in the United States, it doesn't mean that international investors and U.S. investors can't get access to it. They just have to invest over in Shanghai or in Hong Kong. Just out of interest, just to give you a sense of the broader valuation of this business, it priced at a level that values the company at $313 billion. Mastercard's value was $330 billion at Friday's close. To your point, this is a monster company. Yeah, it is a giant of global finance, and uh, clearly it's going to be something that people will be watching very closely to see if it uh, you know, 
widens that market cap lead over the likes of MasterCard and Visa. And, you know, everyone's watching Alibaba, which is approaching a trillion dollar market valuation in its own right. Yes. I think we, we get to call a Jack Ma a legend now. He's not a mogul. He's a legend. Paul Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, a reminder of our breaking news this hour. The U.S. Vice President's Office says Mike Pence and his wife Karen tested negative this morning for coronavirus. This, of course, in light of a number of aides surrounding him having tested positive for COVID over the weekend. The vice president said he would preside over tonight's Senate vote to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. But the White House chief of staff says those plans remain in flux. Now, as for President Trump, he's en route to Pennsylvania, one of the most crucial swing states in the country. He left the White House a few moments ago. And finally, it's one small step for a voter hoping to inspire a giant leap for the U.S. electorate. An American astronaut on the International Space Station is proving there's no excuse not to vote if you're able to, as she cast her ballot more than 300 kilometers above Earth. Remember that in 2016, U.S. voter turnout was almost at its lowest in two decades. Kate Rubens explains how she can make her voice heard, even in a place where sound doesn't carry. There's legislation passed a number of years ago to allow astronauts to vote in space. Uh, I think a lot of astronauts uh, do this. They, they feel that it's very important. Um, it's critical to participate in our democracy. We consider it an honor uh, to be able to vote from space. And so uh, we, we fill out a form and we vote via absentee ballot. Uh, and I plan on doing that uh, in November. I, I think it's really important for everybody to vote. And if we can do it from space, uh, then I believe folks can do it from the ground too. You're certainly socially distant in space. I have to make that point. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Stay safe. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.